Well, I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving um, to the men and women at 33rd Street. Um, I know that uh, Thursday probably was a hard day, and I want you to know that I was praying for you, uh, and I was mostly praying and thanking God that you are a part of our family. And I really hope that uh, he met you uh, on Thursday with a surprising amount of grace. Um, My hope for all of us, though, this Thanksgiving was that we would have a Thanksgiving full of Sister Schubert rolls. Those are my favorite. I, am, I, am, I just love Sister Schubert rolls. Uh, full of Sister Schubert rolls, as well as uh, no political talk. Um, but my guess is Uncle Frank wanted to talk about politics, and, uh, and that ruined things. And, and I know you're feeling awkward right now because Uncle Frank is still in town, and he's with you because he's going to the airport later tonight, and he's sitting there, and I'm saying to him what you wish you could have said to him on Thursday. You ruined Thanksgiving. So thanks, <laughs> Uncle Frank. Um, but, uh, but seriously, um, this is just, it's just been a mess, right? I mean, the last few weeks uh, have just seemed so uh, disheartening. I, I, I read things and, and I see the ways in which we are talking about each other and to each other, um, and it just feels dark. And, and it feels dark because it's not just the way those who don't follow Jesus are talking. It's the way we, we who follow Jesus, the way we're talking to one another. It's really hard to see a difference between those who follow Jesus and those who don't um, in this kind of season after the election. And so for me, uh, this time, I, I, just, I just feel a heaviness. I feel a weight. I feel a darkness around us. And as I was preparing for Advent and I was, and I was reading and I was studying God's word, I was reminded of the fact that this world has always been dark. Like, that's always been the case. In fact, before creation, we're told in Genesis 1, verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And what we're told right there at the beginning of our story is that there was this primordial darkness and chaos that existed before the world was created and that God actually took that chaos and ordered it and made it into something that he would call good. So the darkness, it's, it's been there. It's been there for a long time. And we're told that just three chapters into our story, the darkness came back. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, choose to not trust God, to rebel against him, they began an undoing of creation uh, in which we are now living in the aftermath of that. So the fact that our world is dark shouldn't surprise us, but it also shouldn't defeat us. The darkness is true, but it's not the whole truth. And nowhere is that more clearly seen than in the Christmas story. At the beginning of John's gospel, the apostle John writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made and nothing was made that has been made without him. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness is true, but it's not the whole truth. And it seems that during our darkest hours come the clearest promises of hope. Isaiah 9, 2 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Isaiah was a prophet at a time in in the history of God's people that was extremely dark. 
God's people had demanded, they had asked, they said, God, we want a king like all other nations. And so God said, you don't know what you're asking for, but I'll give it to you. And so he gave him a king. He gave him King Saul, who was a horrible king. That was followed by David, who was a, was a good king. And then Solomon was a good king. And then after Solomon, the kingdom split. It divided in two. You had the northern kingdom, which was known as Samaria, and the southern kingdom that was known as Judah. And really from the time the kingdom split, things were, were rough on God's people. We're told that every single king in the north was a bad king, that there was not one king who followed God. And then we're told in the south, there were a few good kings, but mostly bad kings as well. And so Isaiah comes at a time where the kingdom has been divided for a while uh, and the kingdom has been fighting each other. The north and the south are constantly at odds with one another. And it's a dark and hopeless time. And Isaiah comes and he's a prophet to the king Ahaz. And, and at, the, at the time of Ahaz, not only was, uh, was he being threatened by the northern kingdom Samaria, but also the Syrians, uh, they were on their way down to attack too. And so it seemed completely hopeless. And Isaiah comes uh, to, to king Ahaz and he says to him, he says, God wants to give you a sign. He wants to give you a sign to show you that he hasn't deserted you, that he hasn't forgotten you, that he is in control. And King Ahaz says, no, I, I don't want to sign. I, I don't want to put God to the test. Uh, he says, do not, do not show me a sign. Uh, but we find out later that Ahaz, it wasn't because he was so holy. It wasn't because he trusted God. I don't really know why he didn't want to sign. I don't know why he, he turned down that offer from Isaiah. I don't know who he was trying to fool because he did not trust God. But Isaiah said, I'm going to give you a sign anyways. He says, the sign will be this. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel. And then he would go on to describe how Emmanuel would be, what kind of man he would be, what, what he would do. And he says in Isaiah 9, 6, which is the, the text that we're going to be building all of Advent on, he says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah came to Ahaz, and he offered him an opportunity to trust God. See, Isaiah knew that, that the problem for God's people was not about politics, it was not about military, but it was whether or not God could be trusted to keep his promises. And when confronted with the darkness, Ahaz, although he said he wouldn't put God to the test, chose not to trust God, but to trust himself. He chose to make an alliance with the Syrians. He said, I'm, I'm going to join up with you and, and, and that'll help save us. That'll help protect us. And, and in fact, it did work for a little while. Uh, the Assyrians would take over the northern kingdom of Israel, and so that threat would go away. But it would only be a few years later that the southern kingdom, Ahaz's kingdom, would also come to the end by the Babylonians. But what if, what if he had trusted God? What if he had placed his hope in the promise of the one who would come and be Emmanuel? What do you do when you're confronted with darkness? What do you choose? Do you choose to look to yourself or do you choose to trust God? Over the next four weeks, we're going to look, um, as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus, we're going to look at this promise that Isaiah gives and, a, and specifically at the four names he says will describe the Messiah. We're going to look at how Jesus lived into all these names. He lived up to these names that were given to him before his birth. 
And today we're gonna start by looking at wonderful counselor. When do you turn to a counselor? Usually when it gets dark, right? When, when things in life aren't going the way you hoped they would, when things start falling apart, maybe your marriage is not doing well or your addictions are getting out of hand or you've got a wayward child or a really deep wound from a friend, that's when you show up at a counselor's office. Now, when you and I, when we hear the word counselor, um, in our current context, it's a little bit different than what Isaiah would have had in mind when he used the word counselor. See, when we think of counselor, we think of someone who, um, who wants to help us understand how we feel about things and are constantly asking, like, how did that make you feel? How did that make you feel? That's, that's all Jim says to me. And so uh, I, I'm a big fan of counseling, though. So I, I should say that. I'm a big fan of counseling. I've been in and out of counseling most of my adult life, um, but I'm a horrible counselee um, because I'm always trying to figure out what they're trying to do. And once I figure out what they're trying to do, I like to tell them that I know what they're trying to get me to do. And so I, I, I'm a horrible uh, as, as a counselee. Uh, when I was in seminary, there was a counseling office um, that, uh, that was on campus where counseling students could go and, and practice counseling and get, you know, know, um, oversight from their professors. And, and I went to one of those student counselors and I actually made him cry one time. And so, uh, so I'm horrible, but I believe in it. So I think you should go to counseling. Uh, but when the scripture speaks of counselor, um, it doesn't have that in mind as much as an advisor. Now it's an advisor who understands the person they're advising, who knows them, who listens to them, but, it, but they give advice. They often tell them what they should or should not do. And so there's a little bit of a, of a, of a difference in, in that word from how we think of it. But here's where I think they're similar. Whether in our context or in the biblical context, when it's done right, they both help us see things as they really are. Jesus was given the name Wonderful Counselor, and in order for him to live up into that name, he must become one who helps us see things as they really are. So to examine that, we're going to look at the story we just heard read from the Gospel of John, the story where this adulterous woman is brought before Jesus to be stoned. Now, I want you to imagine the scene. Jesus is there, and, and, he's, and he's teaching. It's early in the morning. Um, and I find it interesting that it says Jesus was sitting and teaching, uh, because in those days, the teacher sat, and, and everyone listening stood, um, which might be good for all of us, right? Because maybe you won't fall asleep if, if you all stand and I sit. But, but that's, how, that's how they did it back then. And so Jesus is sitting there teaching. And then all of a sudden, this angry mob of people uh, come come towards this group, an angry mob of religious men, and they throw this woman before Jesus, who's probably wrapped in a blanket, whatever she could grab as, as, they, as they drug her out to, to expose her. Um, and, and they put her before him and they say, all right, this woman has, has been caught in sin. Now what are you going to do about it? And it's important to note that she was caught. In fact, in, in order for, uh, for a charge like this to be brought up, it meant that there had to be two eyewitnesses that caught a person doing the sin. And so this woman wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just hearsay. It wasn't like she was found in a compromising position. It was that she was caught. Have you ever been caught in your sin? And, and I don't mean um, you feel convicted by it or you realized it was wrong, but you were actually caught. It's awful, right? 
I still feel so much shame. I, I think about uh, when I was in third grade. Um, I, I've told you before, I'm, I'm not very good at math. I don't like math. And so in third grade, I used to uh, steal other people's math homework after they had turned it in and, and race their name and write my name on the top so I wouldn't have to do it. And, uh, and I had a very clever system. I would go over to the homework basket and I would, I would place uh, a blank um, homework sheet in the basket and, and then I'd walk away and then I would say out loud so the teacher could hear me, oh man, I forgot to put my name on it. And then I'd walk back over to the basket and I would take out someone else's homework and I'd go over to my desk and I'd erase their name and write my name um, and then put it back in. Well, um, I guess I wasn't as clever as I thought because one time I said, oh, I forgot to put my name on it. And I walked over and I took the paper and as I was erasing the person's name uh, at my desk, the teacher was standing behind me unbeknownst to me and she said, what are you doing? And uh, uh, it was awful. That, that feeling of, of being caught in the act, that, that's what's happened. This woman has just been caught in her sin and she's been thrown out into the light and exposed in front of a bunch of strangers. So now what does Jesus do? How does Jesus respond? I had a professor in seminary that often said to us, if you wanna be a good pastor and a good counselor, you should try to disrupt the comfortable and comfort the disrupted. Well, that's what Jesus does. He disrupts the comfortable and he comforts the disrupted. He starts with the comfortable. While this woman is standing before him, he turns and addresses her accusers, the Pharisees. And he starts by helping them see things as they really are. But it's important to, to note how he does that, how he disrupts them, because it says a lot about who Jesus is. When the Pharisees bring this woman before Jesus um, and they say, what, what, what are you going to do with her? We're told that Jesus bends down and begins to write in the sand. Now, this is the only time in all of Scripture that it's mentioned that Jesus wrote something. But we have no idea what he wrote down. We don't, we're not told. We're just said he bends down and he begins writing. And there's all kinds of theories about what he was writing in the sand, uh, but nobody knows. But I think he was writing their sins. I think he was, he was writing out all the different sins that these accusers um, had committed. And whatever he was doing, though, he was exposing them. He was catching them. And I think the reason we don't know what he wrote is because Jesus hates shame, even when it's deserved. Every one of us know the sin of this woman because the Pharisees declared it publicly. But here we see Jesus getting to the hearts of the Pharisees, exposing their sin, catching them, but we don't know specifically what he caught them in. He doesn't want to drag them into the light so that they would experience shame and humiliation. By writing in the sand, he is simply inviting them to trust him with their sin and shame, to trust that there is redemption. Jesus never wants to shame you. That's not how he acts as a counselor. In fact, Jesus says, I've come to set you free. He said, there's a thief that comes to steal and destroy and to shame, but I've come so that you can have life and life fully. But Jesus also knows that cannot happen if we don't see things as they really are. If you won't name your sin, Jesus will name it. But he won't name it in a way that is unkind and lacking of grace. He will name it in a way that invites you to trust him. So after Jesus writes, uh, 
whatever he writes in the sand, whatever he does to, to catch these religious men, he says, now, whichever one of you is without sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. And we're told one by one, they drop their stones, they turn, and they walk away, starting with the older ones first. He's disrupted the comfortable. And here's where the greatest tragedy in the story is. Those that were comfortable have now become the disrupted. But instead of staying and allowing the counselor to comfort them, they turn and they walk away. They leave. When confronted with darkness, and in this case, their own darkness, they walk away and look to themselves to fix it. Now, I'm sure each one of these men left with a plan to fix whatever Jesus had exposed in them. I'm sure they came up with a restitution plan on the way home. They figured out what kind of sacrifice they needed to be made, uh, needed to be made in order for them to be forgiven and cleansed. I'm sure before they got home, they had already texted their buddy and said, hey, we got to start an accountability group. I'm sure they came up with whatever, whatever they needed to do to get it right next time. How often do we, in response to darkness, not just the darkness around us, but the darkness in us, try to fix ourselves? The greatest tragedy in all of our lives comes from our desire to redeem ourselves, which is crazy. It's crazy to think that we can fix ourselves with the very selves that got us in trouble in the first place. And if you're like me, you've been trying to fix yourself for a long time. Maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not. Maybe you just want to be a good person. But as hard as you try, whatever you try, you find that over and over and over again, you are confronted with darkness. But now what if we stayed? What if unlike the Pharisees, we actually stayed? What would we have seen? So many people have left the church because they thought they couldn't do it. And maybe, maybe you're here today uh, because you're visiting family and you don't really go to church, but you came uh, with your family and, and you left a long time ago because you looked around and you said, I'll never measure up. Whatever, however these people are like that, I'm not that. And, and there's no way that I will ever be accepted here. The younger brother in the, in the story of the prodigal son, I think left because he looked at his older brother and his older brother was... Um, so diligent and, and religious and always did what the father asked seemingly perfectly, even though we know in his heart he had all kinds of resentment. But I think the, older, the younger brother looked at his older brother and he said, I, I can't be that. And that's obviously what the father wants. And so he left. But he was so wrong about what the father wanted. But the only way he knew it, the only way he knew that he was wrong was because he got to a really dark place. He lost everything. He ended up in a pigsty. And when he returned home after blowing all of his inheritance, after uh, shaming the family name, after doing all kinds of horrible things, he was met by his father running towards him, hugging him, kissing him, and then throwing him a huge party. This is probably the most famous story that Jesus ever told. And he told it because he knew the truth. He knew the younger brother had gotten the father wrong. But he also knew that the older brother had gotten the father wrong too. The Pharisees had gotten it wrong. These Pharisees, these religious men weren't bad men. In fact, they they devoted their whole lives to trying to figure out what would please God. 
They wanted to obey his law. They wanted to know and understand who God was, but they missed him. But here, as Jesus exposes to them their sin, he's actually inviting them to know him. And if they would have stayed, they would have seen God incarnate, Jesus, comfort the disrupted. And this is how he does it. He starts by looking at this woman and he he asks her a question. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? We've said this here before, but uh, it bears repeating. Questions invite relationships. I love that the way Jesus begins to comfort this woman is by asking her a question. He asks her a question that he already knows the answer to. Why? Because by asking her a question, he is giving her the power to trust him. By asking her a question, he's inviting her into a relationship that says, I will trust you with my shame. And she looks at him and she says, no one, Lord. Everyone's gone. No one is holding a stone. Everyone but, but Jesus is gone. And of course, Jesus is the only one who actually could throw the stone, right? Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. You who are without sin, be the first to throw the stone. Jesus never sinned, but he understands why we do. When Jesus looked at this woman, he knew why she had done what she had done. He understood her longing. He himself had felt that exact same longing, yet he did not sin. And he tells her, neither do I condemn you. Now, I can't begin to fully grasp the tenderness with which he spoke those words. And I'm sure to this woman, it was a stark contrast to the words that have been spoken to her her whole life. I'm sure when, when she disobeyed, she, she heard the, the scorn of her father. I'm sure growing up and maturing, she heard awful things from the boys. And I'm sure she heard awful words, deceitful words that lured her into adultery. But here was a man and he was looking at her and he says, I don't condemn you. Now that's beautiful. I mean, that's, that's like the Hollywood ending, right? Like you want to end the scene right there. But that's not where a good counselor would leave it. Because a good counselor helps us see things as they really are. Jesus then says, now go and leave your life of sin. Jesus says, I don't condemn you but he doesn't minimize her sin or he doesn't say she wasn't sinning and he doesn't let her play the victim of her circumstances. I recently um, got an email from my nine-year-old son Atticus's teacher um, and uh, uh, she wrote me to tell me that she had given Atticus an assignment and he told her he could not do it because there are five kids in his family. Now, um, I, I have to take some of the blame because I think he hears me and Kelly saying often, like, blaming the fact that we have five kids on not being able to get things done. And so, uh, so he came by it, you know, honestly, but, uh, uh, but he said that. And then the best part was she said, and I told him that I was going to set up a meeting with you and your wife. And he told me, well, they probably can't make it because they have five kids. <laughs> 
Our circumstances can lead us to justify our sin. The fact that Atticus, is, Atticus lives in a crazy house um, with sleep-deprived parents and a lot going on, uh, that, that can be used easily to have him justify his laziness. And I'm sure this woman had circumstances in her life that led her to think that the only way that she could find happiness and fulfillment was in an adulterous relationship. Where have you justified sin in your life? What are the circumstances in your life that have made you think, this is okay. I should get a pass on this. Well, Jesus as a good counselor helps this woman see things as they really are. He doesn't leave her believing that she's just the victim. He doesn't leave her believing that there is no right or wrong, that it's only about what makes her happy. He doesn't leave her thinking that she can decide for herself her own truth. He makes it clear to her. He says, you've sinned. Your choices in life have violated what God intended for you and for others. And because of that, you have brought chaos. You've brought pain into not only your life, but into the lives of others. You're guilty, but I don't condemn you. Jesus says to all of us who believe in him, you're guilty, but you're not condemned. You see, if we just stop at the Hollywood ending with the, the not being condemned, we don't see that we are guilty and then we miss the light. We miss the promise given in the darkness. We miss Christmas. We miss what makes Jesus the wonderful counselor. The word for wonderful in the Hebrew is the word pela and it means wonder or miracle and it's often used in the Old Testament to describe God's judgment and his redemption. So when Isaiah promises a wonderful counselor, he is promising us a miracle. Because you see, this miracle working counselor doesn't just stay in his comfy, you know, armchair. He actually gets up and goes over to where we are broken on the couch. And he doesn't just feel or empathize with our devastation. We're told he becomes it. He doesn't just put on our shoes and walk around in them. He actually puts on our shoes and walks all the way to a cross. When Jesus looks at this woman and he says to her, you're guilty, but I won't condemn you, he knew that that meant taking her punishment. He knew that stones had to be thrown, but that they would hit him. He knew that blood had to be spilt, but it would be his. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift to us because it cost him. As our wonderful counselor, Jesus doesn't want to break our bones. He already let his be broken, but he does want to break our hearts. The psalmist David, after committing horrendous sins against God, wrote, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This Christmas season, let your heart be broken and stay our next right step is always to stay near Jesus. Always. Our next right step never involves turning and walking away and trying to figure out how to redeem or fix ourselves. We don't want to be like Ahaz, who, who tries to devise a plan that, that we think will give us security. 
We don't want to be like the Pharisees who walk away feeling shame and guilt for their sin, but having really nothing to do with it. The birth of the one promised in Isaiah, the birth of the wonderful counselor, the birth of Jesus is proof of the goodwill of God toward men. If God meant to destroy us, if he meant to let the darkness win, he wouldn't have become one of us. But instead he comes to us. And knowing exactly why we do what we've done, yet without sin, he says to us, you're guilty and I won't condemn you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that that is true, that you promised so long ago one who would come and be a wonderful counselor, one who would come and and help us see things as they really are, but not just see things as they really are, but one who would do everything that's needed in order for us to be okay in your presence. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, for giving him to us as a gift, for showing us uh, through him, through the, the perfect life that he lived, that we're guilty, that we haven't measured up, but then through his death, knowing that we're not condemned that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. May we celebrate that truth this entire Christmas season. And Father, I pray for any of us in here uh, who have walked away from church maybe a long time ago that are maybe back for the first time with family. Uh, Father, I pray that you would woo them, that, that if they're feeling disrupted, that you would comfort them, that you would show them that trusting you is what you've always wanted. And I pray that that your spirit would empower them to trust you today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.